Good afternoon and welcome to the fifth luncheon. Believe it or not, we've been on hiatus for almost two and a half, three years. And uh, I'm just so pleased everybody was willing to return to this luncheon and learn. Uh, I am, as Ray said, Jean Newcomb, the Justice Committee Chairperson. It is a pleasure to see you here today. I don't know if you know it, it's National High Five Day. Everybody high five. <laughs> I would like to introduce my hardworking and supportive committee. Nothing gets done without a committee, that's for sure. Please stand or wave your hand as I call your name. Laura Heaney, Christine Hotouten, Debbie Langstaff, Connie Kaufman, Pat Mahar, Chris Minsky, and Lynn Schaefer. You can thank them for all the luncheon and everything. On behalf of us all, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to join us today to build a working relationship with one another. That is our goal. And to consider ways in which we can be of mutual support in these complex and often difficult times. Today we will be focusing on human trafficking in Suffolk County. Our keynote speaker, Detective FBI Task Force James Johnson, started his law enforcement career in 2005 with the Department of Homeland Security's Federal Air Marshal Service. In 2010, he joined the Suffolk County Police Department, first working in patrol and various plainclothes units in the first precinct, before transferring to the newly established Human Trafficking and Child Exploitation Unit in 217, where he is currently assigned. Jim remains committed to being the voice of the voiceless of this most vulnerable and invisible population. It is an honor and a privilege to introduce Detective FBI Task Force James Johnson. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Um, on behalf of the Suffolk County Police Department, as well as the FBI Task Force, I want to thank Pastor Ray and his congregation for inviting me here to speak and represent those organizations. Uh, it's a great honor and a great privilege. Um, just before we get started, a little bit about me. Uh, my name is Jimmy Johnson. Um, as you can see, I've been with the Suffolk County Police Department since around 2010. Uh, I started my career in the first precinct. Uh, did a lot of great things. I had a lot of fun in the first precinct. Um, and I'm going to get into a little bit of a story in a second, but we, we started to notice a trend while I was working in the first precinct, and uh, that kind of led me down my path. And in 2017, I was assigned to the uh, Human Trafficking Investigations Unit uh, with the police department. In around 2019 or so, I was fortunate enough to be selected by the FBI uh, to work hand-in-hand -hand with them on the FBI task force that is uh, strictly concerned with combating just this problem. So my role in the FBI is to uh, bring cases in conjunction with the county uh, strictly related to human trafficking related offenses. And I've been doing that since 2019 and it's been a pleasure and an honor. Um, if you guys would bear with me for a second, uh, we're sitting here in May 2023. If you can go back in your minds to May 17th of 2013 for a second. The Great Gatsby, the remake of it, was uh, in the theaters with Leonardo DiCaprio. You had Rihanna and Bruno Mars all over the radio. The United States was still reeling uh, from the Boston Marathon bombing at that time. And me, I was driving around in a marked police unit in uniform 
in Lindenhurst in the first precinct. As I'm driving on Hoffman Avenue, if anyone's familiar with it, I'm heading eastbound. Uh, I was actually starting my, my morning around 7 o'clock. I wanted to uh, get coffee. That's usually how I, I start my day. Most, most cops do that. No donuts. I, I see the lawyers in the back. No, 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 no donuts, just the coffee. Um, as I'm driving, I have a, a vehicle coming the opposite direction toward me, heading westbound. Um, and this particular vehicle started flashing his high beams and honking his horn. And the male driver was, was flailing, flailing his arms, clearly, clearly trying to get my attention. Uh, so I put my, my lights on, I put my siren on, and I, I stopped the car, and he was frantic. You could tell that something traumatic had just happened to him. Um, he comes running out, and I could see through the windshield that there was a young woman seated in the passenger seat, um, also disheveled and, and upset, and, and actually nude at that time. Um, he runs out and says, Officer, I was on my way to work, and this woman uh, was running naked in the neighborhood and flagged me down and asked me for help. And uh, being, being a police officer, that's something that we don't typically see, and I was, I was a little skeptical of that story. It's, it's kind of out of the ordinary. But uh, the more I investigated it it, 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 it turns out that it's true. He had already just called 911. The dispatch had come over. I heard it on the radio. I had let the dispatcher know that, yeah, I was there, um, and, and I was handling it. And basically what had happened was uh, there was a woman uh, who was victimized by, uh, by an individual in conjunction with some other women. And uh, she had had enough, and she had escaped. And, and she had ran out, and she had just tried to stop the first person she could. What had happened with her is, and I'll get into it in a little bit, um, she had a lot of the attributes that, that lead um, people to become victims of this sort of crime. And those attributes cross all socioeconomic boundaries. Doesn't matter if you have a lot of money or a little money. Um, it, it doesn't really matter so much about y you know, your makeup, what kind of person you are. Uh, there's certain things that, that impact you, uh, usually at a, at a young age, that, that cause you to kind of be susceptible to this lifestyle. And this particular individual had all those attributes and markings. Um, so she is what we would refer to as like an easy mark for a potential trafficker to go after her. What he had done was he had provided her with a number of drugs for a weekend. She thought that they were friendly and, and partying together. And uh, he was grooming her to become a victim of sex trafficking. And what he had done was at the end of the weekend when she wanted to go back to where she was staying in Nassau County, uh, he had told her that um, you're not going anywhere because you owe me X amount of dollars for all the drugs that I have given you. He proceeded to attack her, and within a, a day or so, he was um, posting ads for her uh, to conduct commercial sex work. One of his MOs, what he would do is he would try to, uh, at, at the end of the day, uh, leave these women without clothing uh, in the house that they were staying at so that they would be leery of, of trying to escape because who wants to run out of a house naked? Um, in broad daylight, or at nighttime for that matter. Uh, and he would also give them an another dose of drugs to try to put them to sleep uh, for the night. She had endured so much that it, at one point she had just said, I had enough and I, I don't care that I don't have clothes and, and I'm going to leave. And, and her first encounter was that gentleman, Good Samaritan, who flagged us down. And, and her first official encounter with law enforcement was, was me, the patrol officer. And, and that's what we find in any police department. That's usually the first line of defense, so to speak. And up until that moment, um, I, I kind of had an epiphany there. Up until that moment, I had dealt with individuals like her before as, un unfortunately, like a public nuisance problem, right? It was something we would get calls on, sex workers, things like that. Um, and we would either arrest our way out of the problem, or we would write summonses, or we would shoo them away. And we never looked at them through the lens of what they truly are, which is victims. And that moment, 
I changed my perception of, of what kind of experiences these people go through. And, and going forward from that moment on, through the rest of my career up until present, I view them as victims because that's what they are. And one of the things that I get a lot of joy in doing in, in this capacity is educating other police officers, other members of the community, that it's not a blight on the community or it's not a public nuisance issue. These are truly victims, just like victims of any other crime. And that's what we're here to talk about today. So the first thing I always ask is, what is human trafficking? Does anybody know? Usually I get this. Usually the response is, everybody's seen this movie, I'm sure at some point or another, the movie Taken, um, where people are being um, handcuffed, chained, uh, brought across international borders. Um, a lot of, uh, lot of like, you know, mysterious James Bond type, uh, you know, behavior. And, and that does occur. We do see cases where, where that sort of thing does occur. But I, I would gather it's less than 1% of the cases that we investigate on a regular basis. Human trafficking consists mostly of labor trafficking and of sex trafficking. So the labor trafficking aspect is um, basically you're, you're having somebody perform a legitimate service. Um, typically, we see it on the East End with like farm workers. You'll see it in uh, bodegas, delis, um, restaurant workers. Uh, typically, there's an illegal immigration aspect here where the people that are performing those services may not be of legal status in the United States. And the people that own those businesses are using that to their advantage to exploit them so that they're working 20 hours a day in exchange for minimal to no money. Um, and the repercussions of them trying to cooperate with law enforcement or not do those things would be that they, um, they, they get reported with their immigration status. The other facet of human trafficking is, is sex trafficking. And that's basically commercial sex where you have a client, the victim, the sex worker, and the third party, which is the, the trafficker, that's basically creating the um, elements where somebody is engaged in sex as a business in exchange for currency, and that currency is retained or kept solely by the trafficker. Um, and and that's, that's what we do here in Suffolk County. It's just important to note that statistically across the United States, um, based on all reporting from various law enforcement agencies, 80% of reported human trafficking cases involve sex trafficking. And the reason for that is labor trafficking is a terrible thing and it's a serious thing. Um, but typically, from what we see from the data, there isn't a lot of violence necessarily associated with those sorts of cases. So there's a reason why they don't get reported as much, whereas the sex trafficking component typically has a lot more violence, which is why law enforcement gets keyed up um, pretty quickly. So, I mean, you guys could read this, but I just, I just want, there's one word here that comes up about four to six times. Anybody know what it is? Control. If you don't remember anything else, remember that human trafficking, both labor and sex trafficking, is all about control. So when we present cases um, in court, both federal court and state court, our job is we have, to we have to prove that control, right? So there's a multitude of ways that a trafficker is going to control somebody. Sometimes they'll employ violence. Sometimes they'll employ threats of violence. Sometimes they'll use what's called coercion or fraud which is where they'll make promises of something that's going to happen to better that particular individual's lot in life, and that never comes to fruition. So there's a, there's a myriad of ways that we go about doing that. But if you remember anything else, this is about modern-day slavery. It's about somebody controlling another for economic gain. This is another thing that we typically uh, get asked about. Well, you know, detective, isn't that just prostitution? No, it's not. Um, 
we joke around. Has anybody ever seen a unicorn in real life? I, I haven't seen an independent sex worker in real life. At one point or another, an independent sex worker who's doing it on her own accord was, was, was trafficked, statistically speaking. And if they're at that level where they're operating independently, it's because they've probably been victimized for so many years that they're no longer lucrative or marketable for traffickers. However, because they've been exposed to that lifestyle for so long, they have no other skill sets. So they have nothing else to do and no other wherewithal to engage in any other kind of a legitimate activity or employment that they try to scrape by doing it on their own. But that doesn't take away the fact that they were a victim at one point. Uh, titularly, or by, by, by statute, the difference is prostitution is basically an economic arrangement, a business exchange between two parties. So you'll have um, the victim and the client, the John. On the street, you'll hear clients of, of, of sex work referred to as traps, tricks, stains, Johns. Um, they're the purchaser of the commercial sex. So that's the business arrangement. There's two parties, and, and that's solely where it ends. The difference here is that once you have a trafficking situation, there's always that third party. There's another element. So now you're going to have the victim or the, or the worker. You're going to have the customer um, who's, who's getting the, the, the product. That's the business exchange. But that business exchange is actually being conducted or choreographed by the third party, who's the trafficker. You'll, ha you'll commonly hear them referred to as pimps on the street. Um, and they may not directly broker that deal where they're actually dealing directly with the customer, but that doesn't take away the fact that they're the ones that are benefiting from that girl's um, victimization, as well as the fact that they're retaining all of the funding or the, um, the fruits of, of the labor, so to speak, that, that she's getting. She's not keeping that on her own. Whereas with the independent um, sex worker or the, or the uh, prostitution portion, that's the, the theory. It's, it's, it's a two-way street, she keeps the money, uh, that's given to by the customer. That doesn't happen with trafficking. And you'll, like I said, you'll see that the vast majority of what we see here in Suffolk County are trafficking situations, not, not prostitution with independent workers. Um, one of the things, I don't know if anybody uh, knows this, but uh, police officers are not typically the most patient people in the world. And um, usually, and it's just the nature of what we do and, and how quickly we have to respond to things. And one of my challenges in doing this sort of work is, these are victims that they don't have the capacity to speak linearly or, or chronologically. They have what's called traumatic memory. Uh, I was a military guy. Uh, I served over in Iraq. And this is also something that we see with veterans coming back, is anybody who's exposed to a traumatic event or, or brain injury, which I'll get into some of these girls experience that as well, they have a physiological response with their body where they're unable to piece together memories in order. Now, if you're the police officer responding to interview this person and you're used to somebody telling you in order what happens and then how can we help, it's very difficult. So you'll be talking to a victim of these sorts of crimes and they may start the story at the beginning and then jump back to their favorite toy when they were a child. And the challenge is we're gonna have to be able to redirect our approach. Um, and this goes for everybody in, in the community as well when you deal with these individuals, that you have to be cognizant of the fact that they're incapable of thinking the way we are based on what they experienced. Goes hand in hand. The, the commonality between all of the victims that we see is they, whether they grew up in, you know, I've knocked on doors in Dick's Hills on gated communities with multi-million dollar mansions, and I've gone to some other neighborhoods where it was a squatting uh, situation um, where I had to talk to somebody. But the commonality between those two types of victims are 
there's usually a poor emphasis on education in their upbringing. School wasn't important. Education wasn't important. There's an issue at home with the family. Either mom and dad are together, but they have a lot of issues with one another, and that resonates with their kids. Maybe mom's there, but dad isn't, vice versa. Maybe they're living with a relative or a grandparent, but there's some kind of issue in the family structure um, of, of these victims, regardless of where they come from. Uh, the other thing that we typically see is there's usually some sort of undiagnosed or diagnosed mental health or emotional problem that was either never addressed or is being inadequately addressed. All those, you put them in a pot, you mix them together, and typically that yields substance abuse in some form or another. So with the vast majority of our cases, that's, those are the attributes we see, whether somebody's living you know, in a beautiful neighborhood um, on the North Shore or maybe they're somewhere else uh, on Long Island and, and not, not so great of an area, it, that doesn't matter. Um, the other thing is, you know, typically we do see victims that are, are many of them are women, but that, that crosses that boundary too. We have male victims. We have transgendered victims. That doesn't play a role um, in how we investigate cases or why really somebody becomes a victim. It's more those other elements that I, that I mentioned. And one of the things when um, we're fortunate enough to have uh, Detective Sergeant Murphy with us today, who we started the unit with him in 2017, and when we had started it, one of the things that we were nervous about is, I just mentioned all of the issues that these victims typically have. Now, we're going to have to build a criminal case, and at some point, they're going to have to come to court, and they're going to have to be seen by a jury. How is a jury going to view these people? They have criminal backgrounds. They have some mental health issues. They have at-risk lifestyles. There's a lot going on there. And it's something that very quickly, when we had our first couple of trials, uh, we overcame because I'm sure everyone in this room knows somebody that struggled with substance abuse or mental health issues. And you are the people that comprise juries in Suffolk County and anywhere in, in the country for that matter. I've had trials here in Suffolk County. I've had trials in federal court in Suffolk County and state court, uh, one with Judge Camacho back uh, many years ago. And I've also had trials in the city, which obviously the demographics of the city are a little bit different than we have out here. But the one constant that remains the same is that juries know somebody in their life that had at-risk behavior, that had issues like this, and they don't care. They just want to hear the story and look at the evidence. So this slide is really more of a dilemma for us in our communities, in our professional lives. It's teaching police officers and professionals that are going to encounter these people this, because the community kind of gets this already. It's, it's us reprogramming the way we view these people. And um, that's one of the things that we work very hard on, going back to the police academy and speaking to various organizations to explain that to people. This goes in with we, what we were just talking about. Um, very rarely will you have a victim walk into a police precinct and say, hello, I am a sex trafficking victim or I'm a labor trafficking victim and I would like to discuss it with a detective. That does not happen for a couple of reasons. They don't like viewing themselves as victims. Nobody wants to be a victim. Nobody wants to call themselves a victim. Um, they also, there's a fear there of repercussions, both from the person who's trafficking them as well as from us. You know, they're engaged in illegal activity. What are we going to do to them? Um, and the other thing that people have to be cognizant of is, even though their experiences with these individuals and these crews are, are atrocious by our standards, it's still, um, they don't view it that way. There's a sense of loyalty that they have to these people, and there's a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons why they feel that way is, if you remember all the attributes I named prior, that's somebody that's got a lot of instability in their life, right? 
even though this is some pretty terrible experience, this is a pretty terrible experience, it's still a level of stability because they know what they're going to do every day. And that sounds very difficult for us to swallow, but we're living in a different spectrum than they are. We haven't experienced what they've experienced and their backgrounds and what they've done. So in their world, it's terrible, but it's a constant. It's a routine. And now we're going to thrust them out of that and say, hey, we're going to give you all these resources. Don't worry about that. You don't have to go back to that guy. And in some way, shape, or form, because of their experiences, they almost want to stay there because at least they know what's going to happen. Where am I going to put them? Am I putting them in a shelter, a group home? Um, how are they going to get there? You know, who are they going to hang out with? They don't know anybody there. Even though this person might be very violent toward them, they still know that person. And we used to call it Stockholm Syndrome. We now refer to it as trauma bonding. He, he may be a, vet, a very bad guy that does very bad things to her, but she actually experienced those bad things directly with him. And that sticks with us. And it's very important to remember that when you're dealing with these people. Again, we just covered this. This is, this is not typically what we see. Um, basically, the way we get our referrals is from the community, from, from people like you. You tell us about some things that you observe. Uh, we get it from patrol officers, from other law enforcement organizations. Um, I'll get into a slide in a minute, but we have uh, representatives from the Sheriff's Department here today. They're fantastic. Um, when I first started my career in Suffolk County, the sheriffs and the police department didn't get along very well. And I'm very happy that over the last seven plus years, that's, that's changed dramatically. We have a great working relationship with them because they're keyed in um, to the jail system and to different populations that we don't get to see on a regular basis. And they develop rapport and trust with a lot of these victims, and then they make intros. Hey, I have a guy, this guy Jimmy, he's cool, he wears a lot of hats, but don't worry about it, you know, he's cool, he'll come in and talk to you, and uh, they introduce us to these individuals, and we can, you know, expound upon that trust level. So working with the community for various organizations, um, I know Sandra was here, I don't know what she ran off to, but um, we've worked with her repeatedly. Uh, we get referrals from a lot of different places, so it's, it's important to remember that you guys play a very important role in how these people get help and how we're able to prosecute the people that did this to them. Again, we covered this too. Just remember when you're, in, when you're talking to these people, well, let me back up. It's important to note that going back to my, uh, my slide with the, um, with the taken screenshot, you know, just because somebody's not handcuffed or chained to a wall doesn't mean they're not handcuffed or chained to a wall. The victims that I'm talking about are walking amongst us today. You probably saw a few of them this week and you probably looked at them through a different lens probably one of not a lot of empathy or, or sympathy, um, possibly. So it's important to note that they're out there, and just because they're not chained up doesn't mean in their mind they don't feel that they're chained up and that they're a prisoner. So when you're, when you're encountering these people, you have to be cognizant of the fact that they feel as if they're in jail or they are chained, even though they're walking amongst us. And that has a certain psychological impact and that's going to come out and resonate when they communicate with members of the community. So it's important to be cognizant of that when you're talking to them or encountering them. This is important. Um, so this is a, this is a, a quote from a, from a victim. And it's, it, it goes back to what I was talking about, about that, that bonding experience with, the, with these people that are doing pretty terrible things. And basically what, what she's saying here is that even though all these terrible things happened to me, you still had that kinship with him because that was the only stable facet of your life. That was a constant there. So it's important that we remember that because in our logical thought process, we can't wrap our heads around why somebody would stay if they're not being chained to a wall in that kind of environment. 
And what we're trying to relay to the public is that just because they're not chained to a wall doesn't mean that they're not chained up in their own mind where they're, they're unable to walk away. Um, a number of years ago, I went to a conference, and there's a woman named Rebecca Bender who uh, gives a, a great presentation. Uh, she was a sex trafficking victim for a number of years across the United States. And one of the things she said that resonated with me is, I've been clean for 20 years. I have my master's degree. I, I've done all these wonderful things. I have a family. If my trafficker walked in this room right now and told me to get in the car, I don't know that I wouldn't get in that car. And that's a very powerful thing. So it's almost, just so you know, it's, it's, you, never, you never get better or you never cured, so to speak. It's a lifelong commitment to trying to rehabilitate yourself, and it's very easy for them to get thrust back in. And uh, if you would bear with me, I just want to let her talk in her own words about that because it's pretty powerful. It's a, it's a short, quick video. raised in a small town in Southern Oregon, and I was a good kid in school. I grew up in a normal middle-class family. Um, I got great grades. I was really active in sports, and I even graduated a year early. I was accepted into Oregon State University, and I had my dorm room already assigned, and I was really excited to move up to Corvallis. But that summer, I got pregnant by my boyfriend, and I had to make a real tough decision whether I was going to keep my baby and unenroll from university or get an abortion and keep it all a secret. And that was a really tough summer for me. After I had the baby, I had some friends that had gone up to U of O to go to college and they had an extra room in one of their apartments. It was at that time that I met a boy or a guy who pretended um, to take interest in me. I really thought he liked me and we got along really well. He was really funny and charming and. He had a nice car and he, he always picked up the tab, he had nice clothes, and he told me he was a record producer, that he had a band um, up in Portland, and that's why he frequently went out of town. There's a saying that says, when you take a child by the hand, you take the mother by the heart. And I really think that's what happened for me, because I had this new little girl and this man who showed this desperate attention towards her, like he wanted to really help make this family that I really wanted for my daughter. and. He invited me to move in with him after about six months of dating, and I was really excited. And I brought him down to Southern Oregon to meet my family, and everything seemed fine until we arrived in Las Vegas. He said we were moving there because that was the entertainment capital of the world, and being a record producer and having um, a band, that that's where they were gonna get the most gigs and the most jobs, and that's where his job was leading him. So I desperately uh, wanted to go with him, to be with him and, and to start this family that, that he promised me. He pulled up to an escort service and he said, this is how it works in Vegas. I've spent a lot of money to get you here. I put first and last on an apartment. I filled your fridge up with food and you're gonna need to get, run that money back. And I felt, I felt trapped. I felt like, um, how am I going to get out of this? And you didn't know if you were going to live or die. You didn't know what he was going to do or what he was capable of. And so it's, it was really scary. I can remember just running through the casino thinking, like, these people don't even have a clue what's going on. They're just, you know, cha-ching, cha-ching, Las Vegas, yay! And they're doing all this stuff. And I'm, I'm running for my life. I'm running from a man that has forced me into doing things that I didn't want to do. When you have a, a trafficker that's 
waiting at home with your child and says, if you don't bring home $1,500, you're going to find your daughter out on the corner. I think I was probably more frightened to go home than I was to be in the room. Because if you got robbed, it was your fault for being stupid. Um, if you got raped, it was your fault for not watching your back. Anything that happened to you was typically your fault and you incurred more punishment for allowing those things to happen to you. So it made you always walk in fear of your trafficker. And what she described is, is typical of what we see here on Long Island of these victims. Again, what she described is what? Control. And there's, there's ways that you could do that without violence. There's ways you could use violence. And typically what we see, it's a little bit of a mixture of everything. You get a little bit of violence with a little bit of coercion and fraud um, with some threats of violence as well. Um, very powerful story. Basically, again, if you look at this wheel, to get to control, we start with targeting the victim. And you know these particular individuals that engage in this sort of crime are experts, hunters, if you will, at, at figuring out very quickly by reading body language of who would be a good target. A um, number of years ago in 2017, we had a victim um, and she had all the attributes I had mentioned and she was on a train and she was heading toward the city and there was an individual who saw her and could see all of those attributes on her face. And he walked up to her and he said, you're the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. And she said, that's the only time anybody acknowledged me or gave me a compliment in my life. And within 24 hours, he had ads posted for her um, on commercial sex sites because all he had to do was read her body language to know that she's going to do whatever I tell her to do as long as I show her a little bit of attention and give her the little bit of need or that number three, filling that void, that need that, she, that she's requiring. Once they do that, then the isolation begins. Any kind of legitimate connections or illegitimate connections they had prior to meeting this individual start to get severed. And then from there, they start testing the waters. What can I get away with? It might start with an arm grab or maybe a slap um, before it gets progressively worse. Um, same thing with their, with their communication, with their verbal communication on, on threats. It'll start slow, they'll figure out where the, where the breaking point is, and that's when they know they have them, and before long, uh, they have control. People always ask, what do you look for? And it's, it, it's a very difficult question to answer because there's so many different things you could look for. Sometimes you don't see any physical signs that somebody's a tra trafficking victim. Sometimes you do. Like anything else in life, it's on a spectrum, right? Um, and the other, the other thing is, you gotta remember, um, some of these things that are on the screen here that are um, signs of, of sex trafficking or, or human trafficking, they're also signs of other things as well. It could be a domestic violence issue. It could be a bullying issue at school. Um, they manifest in a lot of the same ways. Um, as far as physical violence and injuries goes, there's two schools of thought in the trafficker world, if you will, on, on that. Um, sometimes you'll see women um, or, or victims in general, men, men as well, that are um, victims of these sorts of crimes, and you'll see physical bruises that are they're visible to the public. Certain traffickers prefer to do that because they use it as a billboard or a sign. This is what happens when you mess with me. This is what happens when you don't listen to me. This is what's going to happen to you if you don't do what I tell you to do. It's a message for clients, it's a message for other victims, and it's a message for other traffickers. I'm a violent person. The other school of thought with physical injuries is they don't want it being displayed to the public because it's, it could be bad for business. Clients might not like that sort of thing. It could key up guys like me in law enforcement. 
So what they'll do is they'll injure the woman or the, or the, uh, or the male victim um, in places on their body where only they can see. That's typically covered by clothing on a day-to-day -day basis, so the public can't see, but every day they have a constant reminder of what will happen if they don't comply with the orders. So as far as physical injuries go, we, we typically see that. The thing that um, I like to mention with indicators, um, with, with if, if somebody suspects in the neighborhood or the community that there might be a sex trafficking, but they're leery because it could also be a bullying or a domestic violence issue, that, that's our job. Let us do that. So I tell people all the time, if you see something that you think is an indication that there could be a sex trafficking thing, but you're not sure, tell us anyway. If it's a domestic violence issue, I'll learn that and I'll put that where that needs to go and it'll be addressed. If it's a bullying issue, the same thing. If it's a mental health issue, the same thing. So we'll, we'll deal with that. Don't withhold observations in, the, in your communities because you're afraid of over-reporting something. That's why we're here and we'll figure that out. And on that note, um, I don't know if everybody knows this, but a lot of people don't like talking to the police. It's not their favorite thing to do. Um, so we're cognizant of that. So what we usually tell people in the community, and this is great for, for all your various organizations, is if somebody's uncomfortable with, with going into a room with me or in person speaking with me, that's okay. Um, we have a great program with Crime Stoppers organization, uh, the police department does. And basically what this is, is you can report a very detailed account of your observations or your suspicions, and it's completely anonymous. And a lot of people never believe me about that, and uh, I always make a comment about it. I very briefly helped out um, with, with the Gabby Petito uh, missing persons case, obviously everybody's aware of. I was on the FBI task force for that, and one of, my, uh, one of the requests of the FBI was that I, I review all the Crime Stoppers tips. So I, I, I was doing that, and I found a couple that I thought were pretty lucrative. So I called Crime Stoppers, and I said, okay, let me know who it is. I need to know, because I'd like to do a follow-up. And they're like, no, that's, that's not possible. I, I never knew that the level of anonymity that goes into this, there's no way of tracing these. So that gives people a lot of comfort and solace when we reinforce that fact that you could tell us everything you've seen if you don't want to talk to me in person. I'll get that information. I physically can't contact you back unless you want to contact again and say, hey, I decided I'd like to talk. Um, that being said, I'm still able to investigate some of these heinous things without you having to be in a room with me. So we always like to put that out there. It makes people comfortable, and it's a great tool that we use. So the good news, um, the Human Trafficking Investigations Unit in Suffolk County. So prior to May of 2017, when the department um, went ahead and started this, there were only two convictions, um, actually two arrests, for sex trafficking or human trafficking-related offenses in Suffolk County. Uh, the individual I was telling you about with my story with the woman who escaped him, uh, that's, that's the guy on top. Um, and Judge Camacho could probably tell you some good stories about his antics in the courtroom during that trial. Um, and then the other one was the other individual from the same area in the precinct. Um, same thing. But other than that, there was, there was no other investigations into, into human trafficking. And around 2017, the department started to take notice of the fact that this is a real problem and these are real victims and we, we need to address it. And it's very difficult to take a complex investigation with complex victims and pawn it off on a pre-existing unit, like a general services squad or a major case squad, because obviously they're tasked with doing other things, and this is a type of crime and a type of endeavor that requires a lot of attention, so we isolated it to one separate unit. And fortunately, we have Commissioner Carter here with us today. The police department continues um, to foster that logic of keeping this as a separate unit to work nothing 
but human trafficking related cases. So 2017, we started doing that. First, it was a pilot task force, and then in 2018, uh, we had some success, and they, they kept us permanent. Um, the one thing here that's very unique with the Suffolk County Police Department and uh, the FBI task force here on Long Island is that bottom, that bottom rung, the ultimate goal, if you read that from there down. It's one of the first times in my law enforcement career that regardless of whether or not somebody wants to cooperate with us as a victim, we're still going to give them services and all the help we can. So we've had victims that'll tell us, I'm not telling you a word. And we say, okay. And we still put them in touch with people like you. We put them in touch with various non-for-profit organizations. We help them out with whatever issues they're having in life. We, we do as much as we can to help them and there's no strings attached. And the first couple of times we did that, they like anybody else would be skeptical. Like there's gotta be a, a, a quid pro quo here. And they learned soon that we would not hound them. We would give them, we would wait for them to call us if they needed something. We would put them uh, in the right direction, and we didn't ask them about their cases, and we didn't, we didn't hound them, we didn't pester them. And uh, they started to realize that, and th th there's twofold to that. One, it's the, right, it's the right thing to do. We're the police. We're here to help people, right? So even if it's not going to further our investigations or our arrests or anything like that, we still have to help people. So it's the right thing to do, but a byproduct of that is that after a little while, they realize that we're legitimate, we're trustworthy. We're not playing a game on them, and they come back willingly and say, hey, you know what, I'm ready to tell my story now, and we'll help them just like we would if they were a burglary victim on day one. Um, so that's very unique to, the, to this police department and to, uh, to the FBI task force here in this area, that we will help people and we will work on their cases um, on like the civil side, so to speak, regardless of what happens criminally. We have a human trafficking court that's much akin to like a mental health court or a drug court where uh, once victims are identified and they have arrests that are maybe unrelated to their victimization, we could still um, kind of transfer those cases uh, in a way where they're going to get court mandated treatment and resources. So let's say somebody's picked up for a pettit larceny and it really might not have anything to do with human trafficking. The fact that they've been identified as a human trafficking victim will make them eligible to go to human trafficking court to get the services and the help they need. And that, that's another thing that's unique to this part of the country in Suffolk County. You don't really typically see that in other parts of the country. <laughs> Coordination. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, the Sheriff's Department, um, we, have a, we have a great uh, relationship with them. Um, somebody unfortunately is arrested and incarcerated. Um, they're the first line of defense. They, they see them every day and they develop relationships with these people. And these victims trust them. And then they say, hey, there's some people that we trust that we would like to introduce you to, and that's us. And we get a lot of uh, great information, and we identify a lot of victims that way. We also have SCADI, which uh, Detective Sergeant Murphy and um, some of the members of the police department a couple of years ago uh, helped create with an organization called ECLI, which I'll get to. And basically what it is, it's a, a community uh, organization of a mix of not-for-profits, law enforcement, and external um, agencies all within the Suffolk County area that meet fairly regularly and kind of collaborate and figure out uh, what's lacking, uh, what's going right, and which direction we can go to to help these victims of uh, human trafficking. Some of the other organizations that we, we regularly partner with, I had mentioned Crime Stoppers, uh, all of our federal uh, partners here in Long Island, uh, our adjacent police departments, the NYPD. Um, one thing that people need to realize is if you're coming to Long Island, how are you getting here? You're taking a plane or a car, you're usually crossing the city. So we have a great working relationship with the human trafficking units and the vice units with the NYPD um, and the federal counterparts in the city area because many of our cases and our victims 
not only here here in Suffolk County, but they've crossed over into the city as well. And these are just some of the other organizations that we work with fairly regularly. This is always a question. People, again, back to that taken analogy, everybody thinks that they're all from overseas or from other states. And, and yes, we have that. I have a number of cases that are active right now where the victims are from other states and the victims are from outside the United States. But I would say that those are maybe like in the 10% range. I would say around 90% or so of our victims, they're from here, local. You see them every day. The vast majority of the victims we've identified since we've been doing this since 2017 are homegrown on Long Island. And that usually shocks people. Um, but if you think about what I was talking about earlier, all those different attributes on, on who is more susceptible to become victims of these sort of crimes, and you start thinking about your communities and people you know, it might make a little more sense. But yes, yeah, so yes, there is an outside of the state element and there is an international element, probably around 10% of our cases that we look at, but the vast majority are local. Uh, to date, we've identified and spoken with over 400 victims. Um, unfortunately, 35 of them have since deceased. And the reason I put that up there is people have to remember that recovery is on a spectrum. It's, it's not like the movies where we kick in the door, we save the day, we rescue the girl, we take her out, of our arm, you know, out, out in our arms and everything's hunky-dory. It's on a spectrum. Um, a lot of these girls are incapable of immediate recovery. It's a long process. Uh, and a lot of them relapse, and they fall back into that lifestyle. And unfortunately, uh, most of those 35 are overdoses from drugs, because drugs is a huge component of these cases, 80%. 80% or so have a, have a drug element here. Um, so it's important to remember that it's not like TV where we save the day and they're happy and they go live with a white picket fence type thing, right? Um, but what we like to say is that um, we, we leave them better than what we found them. So yeah, they may reintegrate into that lifestyle and they may become victims again, but, but they always have that in the back of their mind that if they needed help, there's an outlet in the police department that they could turn to and that's us. Again, only two convictions prior to 2017. To date, we've arrested over 75 subjects and we have 300 in total uh, indictment counts. So basically what that is, is indicating is the sex trafficking portion, that particular charge, we only did it twice prior to 2017. Since 2017, over 100 counts or charges have been st statutorily sex trafficking, which is it's amazing. So you go from two to 100. Now the other uh, portion of that 320 is these crimes don't happen in a vacuum. So there's always other crimes that we uncover along with the sex trafficking, assaults, sale of narcotics, rapes, kidnapping, um, thefts, various things. So those other counts uh, in conjunction with those sex trafficking charges are the other crimes that we're uncovering um, during these investigations. And just in my last couple of minutes here, um, these are a couple of cases that I personally worked on and I just want to let you know that what I'm talking about isn't something that's happening far away in the city or it's not something that's in California or down in Mexico. It's here. Um, this was, a, this was a, a sad case, but it was a great case in the fact that um, these two individuals were recruiting uh, women, like I described, that were at risk. They were living in a group home and that's where they recruited from. Group homes are huge. Uh, these traffickers like to recruit from there. Uh, one girl was 16, the other was 12. Um, they started uh, putting them at the Roadway Inn in Ronkonkoma, um, preparing them to start um, engaging in sex work. Luckily, one of the girls was able to make a phone call and call somebody that she knew. That person was able to call the police, and the Suffolk County Police Department 5th Precinct did an amazing job of interdicting these individuals at around 2 o'clock in the morning uh, before they could be further victimized. 
and we were able to charge them. Uh, these two individuals um, were charged in state court here in the county with the uh, assistance of the district attorney's office. And then um, after the district attorney's office had met with the federal prosecutors in Eastern District, the, court was, uh, the case was transferred over there. Um, they were both convicted. They didn't have to go to trial. They pled guilty prior to. The mandatory minimum for these type of crimes in the federal system is 15 years. Um, one individual was already sentenced to that. Uh, the other one is still awaiting sentencing. Uh, this particular case was uh, predominantly out of the south shore of Long Island, uh, mostly the central isolate, Brentwood, Bayshore area. Um, we ended up charging approximately 12 individuals, all of them convicted, most convicted prior to trial. Two went to trial, wasn't the smartest idea in the world. Um, both convicted um, at trial, one by a, a federal jury here on Long Island, the other by a federal jury in Manhattan. Um, the unique thing about these guys is what we'll see in these cases sometimes, they used to brand their women with anchors because they used to call themselves the Yacht Club. It was a musical group that was also a front for running um, a sex trafficking operation. So um, a number of the victims were um, unwillingly tattooed with this anchor or they would have to adorn themselves with fixtures of anchors to show everybody else that that was where they worked. Uh, another individual that I'm sure uh, Judge Camacho remembers. Uh, this was a case out of Deer Park. Um, same thing. Uh, Deer Park guy, uh, victimizing a number of women, um, went to trial, lost uh, 25 years. All of the women that he victimized were from across Long Island, uh, North Shore, South Shore, East End, West End. Um, so it's something that does happen in our communities. Well, That's another interesting one, too. Um, you know, a lot of people always ask us, what are you guys doing about the Johns? What are you doing about the clients? Why don't you go after them? We do. Um, we have a, a unique approach to how we, we do that. It's uh, intelligence-led, it's, it's very methodical, and what our goal is with the Johns is to identify who are the most violent Johns. And this is one of them, and this was particularly worked on with the Sheriff's Department and ECLI, one of the organizations that we work very closely with to get these victim services. Um, they had referred a victim to us, and it was, a, it was a great case to work on because we didn't know who the guy was. So it was one of the first times I employed the sketch artist, and we did a lot of legwork to figure out the identity of this individual. And the victims in that case were able to, to pick him out from, from photographs once we figured out who he was. Um, we charged him federally because under the federal guidelines, you can charge a client or a John with sex trafficking if they use the same MO as the trafficker, fear, force, and coercion. This guy would uh, hold women against their will, even though he was a patron of them, and he would be physically violent with them to the point where they would have to um, hurt themselves to escape him because they thought he was going to kill them. Um, he just went to trial. Uh, we went to trial with him in September. Uh, I, think it's, I think it took the jury, I want to say, 27 minutes or so to convict him. Um, so he's awaiting sentencing. That was a, a federal case we had. And because we're in Sayville today, I bring this up because I know it's always a hot topic. Um, I can't get into too many details on it because it is an active investigation. But the reason I bring this slide up is not only are we going after the traffickers, not only are we going after the Johns, we're going after anybody who helps facilitate those two groups operate and victimize other people. This particular case, we garnered enough evidence where there was a hotel or a motel here in your, your backyard that was complicit, um, severely complicit in victimizing these people. And uh, we were able to bring a case before uh, a federal grand jury and we indicted them. And I'm sure you guys have seen since we made these arrests in November of 2022, it's no longer an operation and it's uh, going to stay that way hopefully permanently, um, but just know that we're cognizant of the people that are out there helping facilitate these terrible crimes, and we'll go after them as well. 
And with that, um, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for everybody letting me speak here today. And uh, any questions you have?